It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode four in our series called Spiritual Lessons from World War One," And we are sort of getting into the, uh, the actual storyline of World War I. We, we came close in the last episode in talking about the insecurity of William, and, but that's because it's setting the stage. And almost no matter what we do, there's so much uh, to the storyline of World War I that it's sort of hard to say even where it begins. And, but we, there's a classically understood moment where sort of the conflict is going to be spiked. And that is gonna happen in early July of 1914 in a city called Sarajevo. And it is from a gunshot uh, because and it, it's, it's seemingly insignificant. You know, if you were just to look at it on paper, you'd say, well, that's a sad incident. Oh, that's, that's criminal. Oh, that was terrible. I mean, it's not like you're gonna cheer it on but you wouldn't expect that a world war would come out of it. And the same is true for many things in our life where sometimes the, the breakdowns in our life don't, you know, they come from like the straw that breaks the camel's back. However, there were a lot of pieces of straw added on there before that final straw. And that's, that's a good way of describing World War I and the beginnings of it. There was a lot of straw already on the back. Europe had been anticipating a war for a long time. And everyone had just sort of been praying that they could avoid this. And we live in a time not altogether dissimilar, it's just different variables. We're not Europe, and it's, it's a very different world in which we live. You know, like I would even say, when I, I've taught on the Civil War, I would say America is in a very similar state that it was back in you know, the late uh, 1850s, early 1860s but we're not divided on geographical lines. We're divided on ideological, and that's similar in the world uh, today. It's different than World War I, but it has the same combustibility where you sense we're very close to something just sort of snapping, a gunshot going off and it creating a ripple effect. And uh, so there's, there's some very interesting lessons in what we're gonna walk through today because it's, it can be very, very personally applied, even though at first blush you would say, what does this have to do with my individual life? Uh, a foolish thing in the Balkans. So depending on uh, how well you know your uh, World War I history, that, that comes from a quote, and it was a quote from 1888 by a guy we've already brought up. I think I have a picture of him again. Remember this guy, uh, sort of the a lumberous character in the chair. Uh, that This is in the, the message, Realpolitik, and I showed you the guy Otto von Bismarck, sort of the classic picture of the idea of Realpolitik. But this is what he said, and I did take out a word if you're wondering what that dash is. I figured, you know, it wasn't unnecessary for our gathering today. One day the great European war will come out of some foolish thing in the Balkans. And that is exactly what is going to happen. That was said in 1888, and it was some foolish thing in the Balkans that is actually going to spike a general European war. I mean, it's pretty amazing that this guy said that. But, you know, in our life, we have measurements. We have a way that we live and think, and 
it's based oftentimes on a survey of what's going on in our life. Like for instance, there are certain things you would never do if there's a group of people around you. But if there isn't a group of people around you and you have this sense that there won't be a group of people around you, what it oftentimes does is it opens you up to possibilities of behavior when you are alone. Those behaviors oftentimes in your own deducement are not going to be harmful to your life. Because if no one else can see it, it's like the tree falling in the forest, does anyone hear it? You know, if it falls and no one's around, well, how about your private sin? Does it actually impact anything if no one sees it? And I would say that is like a foolish thing in the Balkans. Here you have all these other major nation states, and it's like they're trying to keep their nose clean lest they enter into a European war. And then you have this little small nation uh, known as Serbia, and they have some radicals inside of it. And it's like, you've gotta be kidding that this little nation is going to spike the punch for everyone else. But we have a tendency to have a foolish thing in the Balkans, where we don't properly weigh the decisions and the actions of our life in the scale of the world in which we live and the eternity in which we inhabit. And we don't recognize that those small things actually set a course for other things that are much bigger. That the big things in our life are defined by the small movements. And so in those moments when you are measuring and anticipating and saying, but no one is around, but no one would know, and I'm not going to tell, speaking of yourself, that you then can oftentimes be vulnerable to foolish things in the Balkans, in the small areas of your life. And yet, here's what I wanna do, I want to reverse that. With everything that the enemy can sort of take hold of and move in, the, in one direction, God has an alternative. He has a better model for the way that you are designed. And in those moments, where you are susceptible to small, foolish behaviors that you are deeming unimportant, or at least that's what you're telling yourself. If you take those same moments and utilize them for the grace, through, with the grace of God, for the glory of God, it's incredible how they will define your life in a big picture. And so that's... That's sort of a, an underpinning theme that I want you to grab a hold of in this. And I want you to allow the Spirit of God to be like a heat-seeking missile in regards to that. Because in those moments when you could do the foolish thing, because you feel that it's a safe territory for a foolish thing, I want that idea to somehow now be invaded by the presence of God where you no longer just feel like you're alone in those moments and, oh, no one will care. But I want to stick the fear of God into those moments and the presence of God into those moments where he's like, uh, I'm here. And this does matter. The powder keg, Europe on the brink of disaster. And uh, a good quote from Barbara Tuckman, Europe was a heap of swords piled as delicately as jack straws. One could not be pulled out without moving the others. There was such a delicate balance in Europe at this time. And just to study that is a, like I could do a series just on that. It's, it's so delicate, so interesting, so intricate, all the leaders, how they relate with one another. And you have almost all the nations that are not wanting war. 
And then you have these other nations, you know, like Germany, that wants war, but not because they want war, but because they feel it's a necessity. And they feel that if they don't have war now, that they will lose it later. They have to take advantage of the now. And so as a result, you have this, in, in a sense, this desire for war in certain countries, which doesn't make any sense because they don't really want war, do they? And yet we have Europe as a heap of swords piled as delicately as jack straws. So here's our Europe in 1914. And I feel bad for those that are getting this via uh, podcast because it's sort of hard to understand Europe uh, just in your mind. But what you see is the red countries or whatever color that is, is like a purplish red. Those are going to be the central powers. And they have allied before 1914 and they have agreed that if one is attacked, the other will come to their aid. Now you're gonna notice Italy in that group. Now Italy was in agreement with Germany, was in agreement with Austria-Hungary, and I think you all know that Italy is the boot-shaped uh, uh, character out there. And however, Italy is not going to come in and fight alongside Germany and Austria-Hungary because Germany is the aggressor. And remember, they agreed to defend not to uh, help fight an aggressive war. So Italy will, will pull out of that. The Blues are already in agreement. So they're known as the Triple Entente. So they have a triple agreement between them. They will become known as the Allies as the war uh, continues. And so uh, this, I said in the last message, Germany, who's the northernmost reddish purple color, they feel encircled. Well, I mean, Austria-Hungary could probably feel a little of that too, but they at least have a little protection with Switzerland, Germany, and Italy uh, on the western side. But Germany has France staring at it. Their arch nemesis is right there, right? And then Russia on the other side. And so now if you look, at it, the colors aren't that easy to see, but the green, there's a green color in there too. And those are the, the countries that Russia has has entered into treaties to defend because they are vulnerable, they are small, they are weak, and they are fellow Slavs. And so Serbia uh, and Montenegro are down there, and that's going to become very, very important in the outflow of World War I because, well, I'll just go through the, the story, but that at least gives you sort of an overview of what's going to happen. Now, if, for instance, if any of these countries are attacked, the other countries will come to their aid. That's, that's sort of the agreement. And so when Germany actually initiates a war, and you feel sort of bad for Germany because Germany didn't start this, but Germany was the one ready for uh, action. And so I'll, I'll go through it and hopefully it'll start to make sense. But we have a character named Franz Ferdinand, who is the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. So you guys see Austria-Hungary, it's the one right below Germany up there, huge landmass, right? And not necessarily the most stable country, has a lot of internal problems right now. Franz Ferdinand is not the king, he is the heir apparent. So Franz Joseph is like the king of Austria and he's about to die. In fact, he's going to die in a couple years uh, from 1914. And this is the man, the heir apparent, who is going to step into his place. And so he is important, but 
you sort of look at it in the whole scheme of history, and you're like, what, in the, over this guy? But uh, he, he does have a significant standing, and it's very, he's very symbolic, especially to Austria-Hungary. And so it's no small thing when he is killed. And so this is the guy that's going to get the bullet. So Austria-Hungary is right there. I just circled it in white, uh, so you can at least see. And then we have another character who doesn't look uh, that menacing, right? Uh, he's just sort of a short little small guy, and his name is Gavrilo Princip, and I'm calling him the gunman. Now this guy, and it might sound like a pretty extreme statement, but this guy probably had more impact on the last 100 years than almost any man, any woman that ever lived. Isn't that an incredible statement? This one man, because of what he is going to do, the foolish thing in the Balkans, it is going to spark what we know as World War I. Now, yes, there was a lot of other straw put on the camel's back. However, this piece of straw is going to be the one blamed for everything else that is going to happen. And I will go into the story briefly. But you're gonna, he's from Serbia. And so I circled Serbia, which is right below Austria-Hungary. And they, this, this man is one of the radicals, and he, he, he has issues with uh, Austria-Hungary and their control, their handling of uh, the Slavs, the, uh, the Serbians specifically. The, and so there's, uh, there's, there's tension here. Now, when you take those two together, you're going to recognize that there is a network of connectivity between all of these. So you have Serbia and you have Austria-Hungary. But who goes with Austria-Hungary? Well, Germany and Italy. Well, who goes with Serbia? Russia. Well, who goes with Russia? France and Great Britain. And so you can see sort of these things that if things start to fall up to par apart and certain people begin to get attacked, that all these other nations come in. And that is a good summary of how World War I happens. Because in our mind, you know, as we look forward, or maybe we, we just look back, and we're just like, why would all the world start fighting each other when they don't even want to fight each other? How could that possibly happen? And that's what's intriguing about studying World War I is it actually makes sense mechanically if you know all the different relationships and dependencies and interconnections. No one wanted this, is what I'm saying, even though I'm going to have to admit the Germans wanted it, but not because they wanted war, it's because they felt the necessity and this was the now. They knew they had to fight. They knew they had to gain that territory. They knew they had to protect their borders. They knew they couldn't handle encirclement, so they needed to do it now. So I, I turned my white uh, circles red because this is going to be the start right here. So Herbert Asquith, uh, who's the British Prime Minister at the time, at the start of the war, sort of the position uh, that Neville Chamberlain will have in World War II, and then Winston Churchill will step into that same position in World War II. This is what he said. Austria has sent a bullying and humiliating ultimatum to Serbia, who cannot possibly comply with it, and then demanded an answer within 48 hours, failing which she will march. So Austria-Hungary is going to be antagonized in this. I mean, do you blame them? Their, their, their arch, their arch, that's correct, their archduke, I was going to say their heir apparent, and it came out archduke. Their heir apparent to the throne has just been assassinated uh, by a Serbian rebel, 
okay? This isn't good. And so they blame the whole country for it. You can imagine how Serbia felt about this. It's like, excuse me, but that, we're not with him. Well, they, they were considered with him. So now Austria-Hungary is going to give an ultimatum. And it's like one of those ultimatums that Serbia cannot comply with. It's an impossible one. So Austria-Hungary wants retaliation. And so given, given Serbia 48 hours if she fails to respond properly, then Austria-Hungary is going to declare war on Serbia. This means, almost inevitably, that Russia will come to the scene in defense of Serbia, in defiance of Austria. And if so, it's difficult for Germany and France to refrain from lending a hand to one side or the other, so that we are in measurable or imaginable distance of a real Armageddon. Happily, there seems to be no reason why we should be anything more than spectators says the British Prime Minister, which didn't turn out to be true. But you, I don't know if you've ever felt that. Just like with the Russia-Ukraine war, it's just sort of like, you know what, it's terrible. Terrible what's going on over there. But we should be no more than spectators in this. You know, that's how Great Britain felt in that exact moment. The tiny newspaper clipping. So this all starts with a tiny newspaper clipping in a Belgrade cafe where... This group of rebels, uh, terrorists, is going to receive a little clipping of newspaper. And they're going to hear that the Archduke is coming to Sarajevo on a very specific date, which was a very hallowed day to the Serbs, and that they are going to see as an affront to them. And so it is going to lead to this grand event. So here's one of the terrorists uh, or we'll call him an accomplice. I, to say this name is not that easy for me, guys, but it's like Borisov Jevtik. Isn't that quite the name? A tiny clipping from a newspaper, this is what he wrote, a tiny clipping from a newspaper mailed without comment from a secret band of terrorists in Zagreb, Zagreb a capital of Croatia, to their comrades in Belgrade was the torch which set the world afire with war in 1914. That bit of paper wrecked old proud empires. It gave birth to, free, to new free nations. I was one of the members of the terrorist band in Belgrade, which received it. And in those days, I and my companions were regarded as desperate criminals. A price was on our heads. Today, my little band is seen in a different light, as pioneer patriots. It is recognized that our secret plans, hatched in an obscure cafe in the capital of old Serbia, have led to the independence of the new Yugoslavia, the United Nations set free from Austrian domination. He's feeling pretty good about his participation in that. It's interesting, uh, but in every situation like this where you see this terrorist, you know, most of us are going to be like, what a bad dude. You know, that's not a good guy. And yet this band is going to be heralded by many still as a freedom fighter. So it's like, depending on which glasses you put on, you're going to look at it uh, one way or the other. Winston Churchill says it this way, great commotions arise out of small things, but not concerning small things. So it's like the straw on the camel's back and then one more piece is the small thing that is just going to create the grand catastrophe. And it wasn't just the small thing, it's just that small thing is what broke the camel's back, even though it was all the, the straw combined that did it. So what is the small thing in this story? It's a wrong turn. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story of the shooting, but it is 
extremely interesting. I mean, it's fascinating. It's hard to even comprehend this straw that is going to break the camel's back. But the archduke is going to come to Sarajevo, and he is going to, you know, they're going to print out ahead of time in all the newspapers the uh, parade route that he's going to be on, and he's going to be in an open car. It's like, what in the world were they thinking? You know, that's what goes through our head. It's like, what, don't you realize that World War I could come out of this? Well, they don't realize that. That isn't in their mind. And so they have an open, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's published. Everyone knows. And so these terrorists know exactly where the car is going to be, and they have all plotted to assassinate uh, the Archduke in this situation. So there were multiple uh, bad guys lined up along the parade route, and you know, as they passed, the first guy, you know, he couldn't quite do it, too many people around. And then uh, someone along the, the route had like a grenade or a bomb and uh, pulled the pin, rolled it. I think he threw it into the Archduke's car. And the Archduke, it, it had like a 10-second detonation on it. The Archduke was like, whoa, 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 threw it out. And then it blew up and injured the car behind. Uh, but he survived, right? And so the, immediately the, the parade was uh, you know, canceled. It's like, okay, we probably shouldn't keep going here. And the uh, Archduke went straight to the local courthouse and filed a complaint. And then gave a speech gave a speech in the courthouse like, how dare you treat your archduke this way when I come for a visit? See, there should be better security. And uh, so then he needed to leave. So after, at this exact point, all the terrorists have, you know, they've blown it. You know, what, well, this is terrible. Even the guy that, you know, did get the bomb in there, you know, he, he bit down on a cyanide pill and then ran to the local river because he was going to, you know, kill himself lest he be caught. And the river was, you know, about knee deep. <laughs> And he jumps into it, and it just didn't work. You know, the cyanide pill didn't work. You know, it was defunct. And, you know, so the whole thing just was a disaster. So if, if you're one of the terrorists, you're just like, oh, boy, this isn't looking good, guys. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. And so for better security, uh, they decide that for the Archduke to get out of Sarajevo, you know, safe, that they're, they're not going to go along the same predictable route because there still could be some bad guys out there, Right. So they, they map out a course of how they're going to get out of the town, but they fail to tell the driver. So the driver goes back to default position the same way that he was originally told. And then somewhere along the line, they go, no, 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 no. This is not where you're supposed to go. So the driver puts it in a park to turn it into reverse, and his engine stalls right in front of a delicatessen where one of the terrorists, whether he was getting a sandwich, we don't know, he was outside of that delicatessen, he looks down and there's the Archduke. So he pulls out his gun and shoots the Archduke and his wife. And so literally when I say what was the small thing that took place, it was a wrong turn. And the stalled engine, on the same day they had tried to assassinate him before, what? How did that happen? And literally the history of the world for the next 100 years is going to be defined. Isn't that just a remarkable story? So there's the delicatessen. It says museum on it now, but that's actually uh, right in front of, uh, that's the place in which uh, he was shot. There's a painting of it. Obviously we don't have photographs of this event. 
And so Gavriel Princip is in the, photo, in, the, in, the, in the painting down near the bottom right. And uh, supposedly he was trying to get two shots in against the Archduke. He only needed one and it ended up killing him. And so some guy uh, tried to push him away and the bullet went and hit his wife. And so he ended up killing them both. Uh, so whether or not that gives you a great understanding of what took place, that's at least a start. Here's a quote from, I'm going to call him an Austrian man. And it's very interesting just to sort of understand the mindsets of what was taking place. When the news of the murder of Archduke Francis Ferdinand arrived in Munich, I happened to be sitting at home and heard it only vaguely. I was at first seized with worry that the bullets may have been shot from the pistols of German students who, out of indignation at their heirs' apparent continuous work of Slavization, wanted to free the German people from this internal enemy. What the consequence of this would have been was easy to imagine, a new wave of persecutions which now would have been justified and explained in the eyes of the whole world. But when soon afterward I heard the name of the supposed assassins and moreover read that they had been identified as Serbs, a light shudder began to run through me at this vengeance of inscrutable destiny. The greatest friend of the Slavs had fallen beneath the bullets of Slavic fanatics. Anyone with constant occasion in the last years to observe the relation of Austria to Serbia could not for a moment be in doubt that a stone had been set rolling whose course could no longer be arrested. Those who today shower the Viennese government with reproaches on the form and content of this ultimatum at issue do it in injustice. No other power in the world could have acted differently in the same situation in the same position. At her south southeastern border, Austria possessed an inexorable and mortal enemy who at shorter and shorter intervals kept challenging the monarchy and would never have left off until the moment favorable for the shattering of the empire had arrived. No other power, oh, that's, 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 I, I, th I did the same slide because I it revealed him as Adolf Hitler saying it. Sorry, guys. I, I, had, I wanted to make my moment a little uh, more powerful. But isn't it interesting just to get a quote from Adolf Hitler? Adolf Hitler fought in World War I, was actually awarded multiple honors uh, for bravery and because he was injured in uh, the war. And he cares deeply about these things, but just to imagine him as just sort of an everyday guy, hearing this news and recognizing the, the light shudder up his spine to realize, whoa, a stone has started rolling that nothing can stop. What is going to happen in the world now? The domino effect, one action that leads to the alteration of history. Now remember, this is also a personal application message. This isn't just for you to you know, be fascinated with history, but it's to recognize that there are dominoes in our life too. There are small, seemingly insignificant decisions that you are going to be making today, tomorrow, the next day, that the enemy wants to convince you don't matter. When in actuality, God is in the opposite direction saying those small things matter. And if you would start living them for him, dedicating them to him, making decisions that truly have him in mind, then you are going to see a grand impact on your whole life. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So in this story we have one man, Gavrilo Princip, who many of you may have never even heard of and yet possibly had more impact on the last 100 years than any man, which is an astounding statement. 
And what we also see in that is that evil, the perpetration of evil, can have grand impact, can be like a domino uh, that uh, falls and then knocks over more and more and more, which is what we see in this story. But we also see, just as Adam and his one seemingly innocuous decision, does it really matter if I eat of this apple, and here we are today dealing with the battles of his decision. Isn't that an amazing thought to think one man's foolish decision in the Balkans is actually going to change and impact all the world? And of course, we're going to see that again with Gavrilo Princip. And these decisions, which oftentimes are of a selfish nature, Gavrilo Princip, if you could sit him down and just talk it through with him, wouldn't you want to to say, okay, are we sure we want to shoot that bullet? Because if you shoot that bullet, do you realize this is going to happen? And then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. And not just 40 million dead in World War I, but over the next couple, you know, you're going to say a uh, couple decades, when you, if you include World War II in there, you're going to have hundreds of millions dead. Is this really what you're after, Gavrilo? I know you're wanting to make a statement politically here, but do you recognize the impact of this one decision? Could you imagine coming up to Adam, you know, as he grabs the fruit, tapping him on the shoulder and saying, <clears throat> uh, are we sure we want to do that? You know, you, you, just stop right here. You know, I, I know it's about, a, you know, six inches to a foot away from your mouth, but that six inches to a foot, if it keeps going, there's going to be a whole bunch of ramifications, Adam. And the same thing is true in our life. You know, we have a tendency to cluck our tongues at Adam or to look at Gavrilo Princip like, well, that was dumb. But how many of us, because we consider ourselves small players in a drama, we don't think of ourselves as being big impact players, that we treat the small moments of our life with a negligence and a nonchalance instead of a seriousness to recognize that every one of God's children is a big-time player in this drama. And that if you start making those small decisions in the right direction, just like you see in the Christ model here, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. There's a pattern there. Yes, it's talking about the Christ, but you are the body of Christ. And when we st step into that role of saying, yes, I agree with you, Lord, that I want to have obedience instead of that disobedience, the disobedience leads to grand impact on this world, but so does the obedience. So here's a story that is going to be sort of the polar opposite of Gavrilo Princip and Adam. And it's a story that I've already shared with you in the semester. It's one of my favorites, and it's the story of Mary of Bethany. But I want you to recognize that like Gavrilo Princip's bullet into the Archduke, Franz Ferdinand, is going to literally change the next 100 years, I want you to recognize that this woman's obedience is actually going to change all of history. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Then one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Then, one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. We have a stone that is starting to roll, a domino that is starting to fall. 
Well, what's he going to be doing with the chief priests? I mean, what is he doing, just hanging out and playing cards? No, he's betraying him for 30 pieces of silver. Does that sound like we've just triggered something here? In other words, what started it, which is so interesting, and we oftentimes don't see what started Judas in this direction. This was a straw that broke the camel's back for him. It's like, that's enough. He was indignant. Cannot believe the waste. I've had enough with this guy. And he is willing to betray him now for 30 pieces of silver. Obviously, money was a big deal to this guy. But what triggered it? What was the straw that broke the camel's back in this? It was Mary's obedience. Isn't that interesting? And of course, you could look at this as a disastrous situation. However, it's in the fullness of time to fulfill all righteousness. God is taking what the enemy is attempting to disturb, and God is going to use it to bring about his redemption. Here's another version of it, Mark 14. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. Just interesting. Straw breaking camel's back. Domino tipping. But it wasn't a bullet shot from Gavrilo Princip's gun. It was a broken alabaster box. It was worship. It was obedience. It was faith. Isn't that interesting? There's two ways to impact history. One is uh, with the gun, the bullets, you know, the foolish thing in the Balkans. The other thing is obedience, faith, worship, giving yourself to Jesus Christ in those very moments that seem so, you know, unimportant. But when you give yourself to Jesus that way, it creates a different domino effect. Winston Churchill says this, in the midst of these festivities on 28th of June arrived the news of the murder of the Archduke at Sarajevo. Like many others, I've often summed up in my memory the impression of those July days. The world on the verge of its catastrophe was very brilliant. Nations and empires crowned with princes and potentates rose majestically on every side, lapped in the accumulated treasures of the long peace. All were fitted and fastened, it seemed securely, into an immense cantilever. The two mighty European systems faced each other glittering and clanking in their panoply, but with a tranquil gaze. So when he says two mighty European systems, you have the central powers and you have the triple entente. And as he says, the two mighty European systems faced each other glittering and clanking in their panoply, which means their full armored dress, but with a tranquil gaze. H.G. Wells, uh, who was living in London, I believe, at this time, this is his statement on the matter. All Europe still remembers the strange atmosphere of those eventful sunny August days, the end of the armed peace. For nearly half a century, the Western world had been tranquil and it seemed safe. Only a few middle-aged and aging people in France had any practical experience of warfare. The newspapers spoke of a world catastrophe, but that conveyed very little meaning to those for whom the world had always seemed secure, who indeed were almost incapable of thinking it is anything otherwise than secure. In Britain particularly, for some weeks, the peacetime routine continued in a slightly dazed fashion. It was like a man still walking about the world unaware that he had contracted a fatal disease which will alter every routine and habit in his life. 
People went on with their summer holidays. Shops reassured their customers with the announcement, business as usual. There was much talk and excitement when the newspapers came, but it was talk and excitement of spectators who have no vivid sense of participation in the catastrophe that was presently to involve them all. There's, there's two ways of, of looking at this message. My primary desire is that you recognize the value of the small moments, that a foolish decision in the Balkans can lead to a disaster in your life. There's so many key leaders that have lost their leadership, strength, and authority because of a foolish decision in the Balkans. And the enemy of your soul is seeking to devour you, which means that though he wants to con you into thinking that those small moments don't matter, they actually do, and he knows that, which is why he spends so much time trying to say no one's looking. No, it doesn't matter. This doesn't have any impact except for on you, maybe. And even that is going to be small. All you have to do is seek forgiveness afterwards. Classic enemy. This is not how God works. God takes the small things seriously. And as a result, if you give them to him, he will leverage them in your life to create a domino effect of strength. The other aspect of this is to recognize how the world was thinking in this time. These political powers, I mean, the, the common man may not understand all the issues of the central powers, all the entente agreements that they have, the triple entente. They may not understand those details, and it may not make any sense why, why an assassination of an archduke would lead to Great Britain suddenly being involved in a war. What, what do we have to do with that would be Great Britain. If you're an American, guess what else you're thinking? You're thinking, yeah, and that has nothing to do with us. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand, what would that have to do with us? If you're an American, you would have that thought go through your head. And believe me, it did. In fact, they made it very clear, we want to have nothing to do with this war. And so it's very easy for all of us to take a, a look at the world around us that seems to be falling apart and saying, this has nothing to do with me. And at the same time, it's important for us to recognize that all the small decisions and all the foolish things done in the Balkans are impacting us. It, it, when we just walked through COVID-19, and that was a whole bunch of foolish decisions in the Balkans, if we could say it that way. It was one of the, it was sort of like we took our brain and took it out of our head for a season and set it over there into a cat, you know, and let the cat sort of run the world. That's the way it felt for a while, where we just sort of lost our sense. And I don't know if we ever got it back, right? But this is all affecting us. I remember at the very beginning, Les, it was, maybe Leslie was in the meeting. I was going to say we had a staff meeting. I think we were in the Studio 29 building. I remember Sarah at least was there. Uh, Nathan would have been there. And, oh, Philip was there. And I said, uh, some, well, Sandy brought up the fact, it was like February of that year, they were talking about this, uh, this scourge in China, you know, this COVID-19 thing. I don't know what it was called then. Uh, coronavirus, I think is what it was called then. And so, and I chuckled at it. And she goes, well, do you think that could affect us here? And I, you know, flippantly waved my hand like, no way. There is no way we're going to allow that to impact us here. 
And of course, famous last words, right? Here's Sandy looks all smart and I look all dumb. But I had no, I mean, it seems so ridiculous that an issue of a disease over in China that is spreading that seems so nominal to begin with. I mean, I, I've studied a lot on different scourges and different uh, diseases over time, and it didn't seem that big of a deal, to be honest. Still doesn't uh, seem like that big of a deal compared to other things like the bubonic plague, right? And yet, it did impact all of us. And so there's a need for us to have a readiness of soul, a readiness of soul for two things, for the small moments in the Balkans, at the same time for the impact of the foolishness of the Balkans that someone else is perpetrating, that when it comes our way, we are ready to embrace the challenge. Some of us would dream of having a lockdown season again. I'd be like, that, that was really nice. But when we were first going through it, we were grumbling and complaining as opposed to embracing it. But if you look back, you're like, what if you were anticipating? It's like, oh, this would be really nice if we could have a lockdown. And I'm going to maximize this for the fullest extent. It's, it's an important thing to be ready, is what I'm saying. The extraordinary impact of the one act. The complete alteration of history for 100 years. So Gavrilo Princip's bullet when he hits the Archduke, is going to have such massive impact and the dominoes that are going to fall are truly remarkable. Now, this is a short list, and I'll be going through this in the series to show how this is going to happen. But one of the, the first thing in the list is communism. Communism is going to come out of World War I. And if you have ever heard of the Cold War and all that has happened over the past 100 years, that's a direct result of that gunshot. It's truly remarkable how communism enters into this story even. I mean, it's very interesting. It's one of the, my, to say it's my favorite, it's not, a, it's not a good thing. However, it's very interesting to see how something like that can creep in to a time uh, like a world war. The Middle East unrest, that's going to come as a result of this. The technological advancement, automotive transportation, is going to come out of this, it's going to explode. And there's all sorts of technological advancement. The craving for oil is going to come out. You could just imagine if you start recognizing, it's like, oh, we could use oil for our ships, we could use oil for our cars, we could use oil for our tanks. We need oil. Suddenly, the Middle East becomes very, very important. Where's the oil? It's there. And so as a result, you're going to see this all under the guise of realpolitik, we want oil. However, they're going to cover it up with all sorts of other uh, excuses. The loss of beauty, purity, and innocence, realpolitik. That which was there and present, there was, a, there was a beauty to the world. And if you look at Europe, these ancient edifices that had been there hundreds of years, these forests that, that were you know, five, 750 years old are going to be just devastated and destroyed by artillery fire. I mean, this beauty of Europe is going to be devastated. A strong disillusionment in systems of religion. The demise of governmental leadership trust. There is an event that is going to happen uh, in a few years after the start, so about three years into it. There's when the, when the government of Russia collapses, the, the Bolsheviks, so we, we would always look at them as communists, that's our term uh, here in America, 
but they are going to get the secret treaties that everyone, all the politicians said, no, the reason for this war is this. They give this reason over here. And then the Bolsheviks are going to get all the secret treaties and they're going to share them with the world. That, okay, when we win, we get this parcel of land, we get this, it's all power and greed and it's all exposed. And what happens to everyone in the world, but they're like, they're looking at their leaders and they're like, you lied to us. Oh boy, that's not helping. Okay, that's going to happen in the midst of this too. And the questioning of leadership that, you know, we can't trust our government anymore is going to massively explode in this. And look at this last one. Adolf Hitler comes directly out of World War I. His grievances and the reason he's even going to have his position is a direct result to World War I. Joseph Stalin is there in position because of World War I. World War II is directly because of World War I. And so as a result, you're going to have hundreds of millions of people that are going to die because of that one gunshot. And even though we all know from what I've said that it's not the gunshot that caused it all, but it's the gunshot that was the final straw that breaks the camel's back. So here's just a quote from a lady named Gina DeMuro. Whether hero or villain, one thing that is certain, Gavrilo Princip changed the course of history. His actions resulted in a war so devastating and horrific that it was dubbed the Great War. By the end of World War I, the houses that ruled Europe for centuries, Habsburg, Ottoman, and Romanov, had all fallen, taking 40 million souls with them. The extraordinary impact of the one act, the complete alteration of history for, well, forever. So when we look at one man's actions and we recognize what is going to happen because of Mary of Bethany's sacrifice, Mary of Bethany breaking open that spikenard, Jesus is even going to circle it and say, hey, look at what this woman has done. It is going to be a trigger that God is going to use to bring about his redemption. Yes, he's the one doing all the redemption, right? But the enemy is going to immediately try and turn this, this good into evil. And yet God is going to take that evil and turn it into good. So we see the betrayal, then we see the cross, then we see the redemption, the forgiveness, the pain of the ransom. We see the burial, the empty tomb, the resurrection. We see the ascension, we see Pentecost, the outpouring of God's very spirit and the empowerment of the church. Isn't that incredible that it flows out of this event? See, this is just how God works. God is looking for those that would function as Mary of Bethany that we would consider that which we are, that, that which we possess, to belong to God, and that we would come to God and break it open, that we would give it to him, that we would not justify holding on to it, that we would not participate in the foolish things in the Balkans, but that we would take those moments when it seems like no one would see and that we would turn them into a worship of our king in the secret place. That we would leverage those moments of aloneness into greater growth and greater strength as opposed to frailty and failure. You see, there is a grace that has been given to us to be applied to our moments in the Balkans, where those moments can be turned into tributes to our creator instead of dastardly deeds that can change history in the wrong direction, but can be moments of tremendous givenness to Jesus Christ that can change history for the glory of God. What did she do? 
She believed that Jesus was, in fact, and in truth, the Savior of the world. If you remember that, see, the fear of God is a beautiful thing that has been lost. To live in every moment as if God is present tense, as if God is right there, as opposed to, oh, God, I know I, I, I'll see you uh, next week you know, when I get to church, but in the meantime, I'm going to live my life however I want. And that leads to a broken down existence. But when you live with the fear of God and you recognize that he is very, very real, like I've always used the illustration of the little kid sneaking into the kitchen and putting his hand in the cookie jar. You know, he's not supposed to touch that cookie jar. Those cookies are prohibited and only if he gets permission from mommy or daddy can he get his hand into the cookie jar. And then in the middle of the night, why would he sneak in in the middle of the night? What's the good of the middle of the night? Because mommy and daddy are sleeping. Okay, that, that's why the cookie jar seems accessible, right? However, if mommy was in the kitchen, you know, sipping a cup of coffee, he's not going to stick his hand in the cookie jar. And that's like what the fear of God is. When you recognize that your father in heaven is in the kitchen sipping his coffee, you don't just bald face right in front of him, stick your hand in the cookie jar. Would you? I mean, who's dumb enough to do that? And it's because we lack the fear of God. We lack the understanding of his presence. We lack the understanding of his holiness. We, under, we, we lack the understanding of who he is. That he is very real, very near, very present. And when we live with that, it changes our life and it transforms those foolish behaviors in the Balkans into beautiful behaviors of worship and givenness and breaking open our spikenard. So this is a, a tough uh, f uh, Latin saying to be able to enunciate, uh, deus ex machina. Uh, and this is one of those phrases that's usually relegated to theatrical compositions or like authors. And so I'll, I'll read the definition, but it's literally God from the machine. That it's, it's an ancient term uh, that has been used for... Uh, for a long time, uh, you know, Greeks and Romans uh, basically came up with this. Literally, God from the machine, the outrageous contrivance of the lazy author injecting an unbelievable solution into a story in order to solve a seemingly impossible dilemma. So what, what the storyteller does is they bring their characters into an impossible place, which is just part of storytelling, right? And the more impossible it is, the more satisfying it is when they get out of it, right? So this is, this is how it works. And so in the ancient Greek and Roman theater system, they had a crane, and that's the machine, the machina, and it would lower in one of the gods, and the God, in one of the scenes where the character is like being eaten by the shark, you know, and there's no way out, suddenly this God would come into the scene and save him. And it was just like so predictable and that history now knows it as deus ex machina. And it's, in our culture, it's made fun of. And so if there's ever a cheapo, you know, author or screenplay or movie that comes out where it's just like, oh, they get the characters into this impossible situation and then... Oh, that was convenient. That, oh, that was convenient. But it's unbelievable to us. We're like, it, it might as well have taken a crane and dropped one of the gods in just to save the character, right? It's, it's preposterous. So here is a little uh, comic strip that sort of says it. So here's a guy being fed to the crocs uh, up above, and uh, his name's Billy. 
He's, and Billy's like, how can I possibly get out of this? I mean, there's spikes on the wall, there's crocs beneath him, and then there's a God character in the next slide. The omnipotent superhero God man slightly shifts his weight, and then down in the bottom left, and suddenly Billy is on a beach in Costa Rica, and he's like, huh, what happened? And then Billy's talking to himself, and he says, I've been suddenly rescued from some, by some force utterly outside the context of this narrative. How unsatisfying. <laughs> For us, that are, are, we have an opinion about story. You know, whether you know it or not, you know a good story and a bad story. And there's nothing worse than uh, deus ex machina uh, to us. That this outside force just suddenly enters the story and changes things so dramatically. How, when, you, when you look at this bullet, the stalled vehicle in the, in the streets, you almost want to say, I mean, this is so ridiculous. It almost seems like God stalled the engine. I mean, that's, it's hard to even comprehend what this is. But we do know that there are forces at work. But there's not just forces you know, where you're just seeing this like, multitude. What you have is two kingdoms. You have a kingdom of darkness and you have a kingdom of light. And they're both waging war on one another. And they're both looking to create if we could say it, the straw uh, in the right time to break open their purposes. And just a hint on this, but God is so much superior to the enemy on getting his job done that even when the enemy appears to be winning, God weaves that into his storyline. So we have the term deus ex machina, Okay, which I'm not a big fan of because you know, I don't even like the phrase God from the machine. I'm not that interested in these gods, mythological gods and things like that. However, it's interesting because in the grand storyline of everything, do you know how many times the characters in God's story get into impossible situations? And it's not that you know, some God, lowercase g, is lowered from a crane to take care of it. God Almighty, capital G, enters the story seemingly from nowhere, right? And does something extraordinary. I just described the entire Bible to you. But I also described your life. Your life is a grand story. And God desires to do something mighty. So I have a new Latin phrase for us instead of deus ex machina. And I made this up. So my Latin isn't very good. So I was doing some like translator thing to see. And I couldn't get it to say exactly what I wanted. So this is the closest as I could come. Deus est in Machina. See, don't I sound very smart? I'm speaking some Latin right now. God is over the machine. So whatever you think is in control, whatever you think is like, oh, the stone is rolling and that's just going to happen. God has intervened so many times in history to cause the impossible to happen. Okay, now I gave you know, just some illustrations in my Sunday service yesterday. You know, but you have Elisha surrounded by the Syrians it's two against a multitude, and he literally with one word is going to blind the entire Syrian army. And people could say, oh, uh, you know, deus ex machina. Yeah, out of nowhere comes this incredible solution for these two guys in this impossible situation. However, it's not a god in the lowercase g sense lowered from a crane. It's God functioning as God functions. Jonathan and his armor bearer, two against a multitude. You want to you know, stick... Uh, us in an impossible situation, if you're a storyteller, you're, you're going to say, oh yeah, right. How are you going to actually win that? And yet, when you trust the living God, he does supernatural things. Welcome 
to Christianity. You see, this is the storyline. This has always been the storyline. And so we're going to have our, our phrase, Deus est in machina. God is over the machine. As we, you know, one of our favorite scriptures, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, no matter what the circumstances, even the bullet from Gavrilo Princip's gun, it's like, oh, how's God going to weave that one together? And yet he is going to get glory out of all of this. He is going to turn the historic events, every bit of it, into a picture of who he is. He wins. In every situation the enemy is trying to put him in checkmate, any move God makes puts the enemy in checkmate. He has this in his hands. And as Joseph said to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. We could say that to Judas. What you meant for evil I meant for good. I turned it. God turns the enemy's foolish things. God turns our foolish things. That doesn't mean we perpetrate foolish things because we know God will change them. You know, Paul has that same argument. If grace abounds when I sin, then should I just go on sinning so that grace could abound? And Paul says, by no means, okay? That isn't how you think as a believer. That's an unhealthy thought process. What we want is to think the way God wants us to think, which is to use our moments in the Balkans, not for foolishness, but for his glory. To allow him to penetrate down to that granular level of our soul in the small, intimate moments and say, nope, let's go towards righteousness right now. And you could dig in your own pocket and say, but I can't go towards righteousness. I seem incapable of it. He says, but I can. Would you allow me to steer you that direction? He is able to save you. So allow him to do it. Father, we love you. And we ask that you would be very present tense in our life. And that you would spare us foolishness in the Balkans. Lord, but where there has been foolishness in the Balkans, where there is foolishness around us in the Balkans, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would steer and take all of those things and bring them to your glory in our life and in this world around us. Lord, you are over that machine. You control it, and you will turn all things for good. Lord, we trust you in that. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.